Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts. I am Cassidy Zachary. And I am April Callahan. So today, Dressed listeners, we are rejoined by Dr. Ariane Fento for part two of our conversation about tie-on pockets as they were worn by women during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And while these types of pockets are a far cry from the types of sewn-in pockets we have today, tie-on pockets were staples of European and American women's wardrobes for centuries, and their wear spanned class and economic status. And we are so pleased to welcome Dr. Finto back to learn more. Ariane, welcome back to the show. Last episode, we left off discussing some of the decorative motifs and embellishments that were used on pockets. And we will hear a little bit more about how, um, in this episode, how the intimate nature of pockets were both used and viewed at this time. So, Ariane, welcome back. I think it might be surprising to our listeners that most women owned several pair of pockets. Why several pair? Okay, so why several pairs of pockets? Well, first, because you could have different, what, the first purpose is that when a pair of pockets gets dirty, then you have a change of pockets, just like you have a change of shift or a change of underclothes. Um, and any linen came in pairs, really, or dozens of pairs, really. And um, <laughs> a classic example is a story that is told in a newspaper, I think, of a woman who has uh, put a puppy in her pocket <sighs> and then her pocket the puppy does his business in his pocket, in her pockets, and she has to ask the servant to go and fetch a fresh pair. Um, so obviously, that it could come in handy to have more than one pair. <laughs> um, another reason is also um, that they could come in different types of finish. So uh, there's an interesting novel we looked at, which is called Grandmama's Pockets. Uh, and it's a Victorian novel, and in it there is a the main protagonist is this grandmother who's got different pairs of pockets, and the other protagonist is the granddaughter Annie, and she's fascinated by her grandmother's pockets, and the grandmother explains that she's got different pockets for different occasions as well. So they'll have they'll be they'll, she'll have the grand pockets for grand occasions and the, the more practical mundane pockets that she'll have she wear more on a sort of everyday basis mm -hmm. and you could also decide to match or not match you could um, have one in the wash and one in use um, so it made practical sense to have different pairs mm -hmm. some women had not just three pairs in inventories you find women like the most uh, pockets one women um, had, and that's not necessarily the most that any woman could have, that's the most that we found evidence for, is 18 pairs of pockets. So <laughs> that's quite a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and one thing that 
is like our entire conversation hasn't addressed, but it's begging this question. What types of objects were women carrying in their pockets? What were some of the more common objects that women were carrying in their pockets? Because of course, we're talking about them being worn across all sorts of class strata here. So um, the contents of pockets is um, something that is obviously quite fascinating. They are bulky. The pockets are compared to a modern day pockets when we do have pockets. Um, they are uh, enormous. So you can carry quite a lot, especially if you have a pair or if you wear more than a pair, which women could do. Obviously, you could decide to wear two pairs or three pairs if you wanted to. Uh, but even if you just had one, just so that your listeners have a visual of what we're talking about, we're talking about something that on average is about 40 centimeters deep, 30 centimeters across. And the, the biggest pair of pockets we have um, is one that is 60 centimeters wow. deep and 45 centimeters across. And it comes in a pair. So you could carry extraordinary amounts of things, uh, both in terms of bulk and in terms of weight. Um, that leads to some unusual things to carry in your pockets, like live ducks. For instance, <laughs> we have a woman who tries to steal two ducks, presumably one in each pocket. I don't think we could fit a duck or even a duckling in a modern day pocket. So that kind of gives you an impression of how big they could be. Um, but the, obviously, ducks is not the most thing. The things we you find most commonly in women's pockets <laughs> at the time. More common are obviously is money. Money is a, is a one big a big thing that you find. Uh, also, other items of clothing. Uh, that's an inter another interesting finding, which is that obviously women's clothing, especially in the 18th century, was made up of all these different parts. So your cuffs could come apart. Um, your um, neckerchief was another layer. And often these removable parts or adjustable parts were something that you could store in your pocket or keep in your pockets mm -hmm. when they got removed because you were warm or because it was inappropriate to wear this in the current circumstances where you were. So other um, items of clothing also... Um, Jewelry is one thing that's interesting because it's jewelry acted both as adornment, you know, a little bit like the removable parts of your dress. Um, you know, are you going to be wearing the earrings or are you not going to be wearing the earrings? Uh, but also jewelry was transformable into cash. You know, it, it, it was a bit of uh, property, a valuable property uh, that could be carried and that you may want whether or not you were right. Obviously, we look at um, court cases, so we look at cases when the pockets failed a little bit, but women presumably put jewelry in their pockets to try and safeguard the mm -hmm. jewelry, thinking that the pocket would be the safest place to store and keep at hand their valuable be belongings. You find also um, other containers, and that's an, another interesting finding that we um, came across, which is that the pocket is a container, and it often contains other containers, 
which themselves were contained into other containers. And we <laughs> noticed this kind of nesting of containers, a little bit like a box of Chinese nests, yeah. um, where women would wrap their coins in a handkerchief, put the handkerchief in the box, the box in a purse and the purse in the pocket as a kind of ritual of protection of whatever they had. Obviously, there's the obvious book, um, you know, paper-based things, books, letters. Although these, in when you look at the Old Bailey, for instance, uh, they are often thought to have no value in the eyes of the court. Mm. They're not always. They're not always listed in the indictment in the kind of official list of the things that were lost. Uh, but they often come in the testimonies uh, when women explain, well, you know, I had this, but also uh, there was also this ballad in my pocket or this letter I had. Obviously, we don't know what uh, was in the letter. You know, when they say a book of memorandum, was this just notes or was this an actual diary? Mm-hmm. This is difficult tell from the old Bailey but from other sources we know for instance that women did keep their diaries in their pockets or some women did anyway mm-hmm. well and and you said that a lot of times the paper-based objects didn't necessarily have quote-unquote monetary value assigned to them but in the instance of duplicates which I thought was fascinating these really did have monetary value so what were duplicates and why were they important so duplicates are really, um, that's another really interesting thing that surprised us to some extent. So duplicates, um, basically, there are the receipts that the pawnbroker would give you when you went to pawn an article. So it's basically a paper receipt. But this paper receipt held the possibility of the value of the object it stood for. And a lot of Poorer women in, in particular actually uh, used pawning as a way of managing their resources, both in terms of storing, um, because you have to imagine that women lived in really insecure accommodation. Most poorer ha- women uh, uh, lived in shared accommodation, sometimes shared room. So they had no room of their own. They had no cupboard of their own. They had nothing to store their belongings. And even something meager, you know, even if it's not gold or even even if it's a hat or your best gown, you would sometimes use the pawnbroker in a way as a storage facility mm-hmm. uh, where something where you think your belongings would be safe and in exchange, so they wouldn't be stolen, you would have your pawn ticket or duplicates to show for it. And you can go and retrieve your object with the duplicates. Uh, and, uh, but obviously, for other women, it was also a way of kind of regulating your cash, your budget, you know. So, like, you're short of money at the end of the month, so you'll raise money by putting your object into pawn. With that money, you can maybe buy a little stock of something, sell it, make a profit, and from the profit, you can go and redeem your object. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's fascinating about the duplicates is sometimes you can see 
just by how many women keep kept in their pockets. That for for some women it was a, a way of living. You know, it was their source of of income mm-hmm. in a way was these duplicates. Some women, you know, she they described their not I wouldn't say their job, but their uh, how do you make a living? Well, I I make a living by selling a few things and pawning. So this was a way of, in a way, making ends meet. And it's interesting because, as you said, the duplicates, although they are just a piece of paper, they are recognized in the eyes of the court as having the money that's written on them. So what we found is that, in a way, uh, one of the sort of big uh, ideas about currency is that coins disappear and that you know you have the banknotes that arrives we didn't find so many banknotes in women's pockets but what we found was this currency of salt the duplicates which is it's a kind of bill in a way it is a kind of currency but it is recognized by the court as currency Mm. uh, saying well we know that it's just a piece of paper but behind that piece of paper is a silk gown, for instance, and the silk gown is worth a few pounds. So it's something, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, and also too, like, you know, given that the court records were kind of one of the major sources within the book, it's not a surprise then that there is a lot of discussion of pockets in the context of theft right? Because that, that was kind of like the dialogue that was happening back and forth. You know, we see the, the, the theft of pockets, um, theft by pockets, which you have already referenced in context of the ducks. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be like terribly uncommon that women were being robbed of their pockets. So uh, my question to you is, how did this happen? Because we've already established the fact that these were very intimate garments. These were tied about your waist and they're worn under your skirts. So how was this occurring? Pickpockets were uh, now and then very gifted at um, penetrating in a way the different layers of uh, women's garments to try and get to the pocket. There's actually an interesting sort of autobiography of a, a pickpocket who discusses the difference, the most favorable position for the pocket to be in, <laughs> um, to be attacked. Um, whether, because obviously the pocket could be worn at different depths in, in your different sandwich of clothing. So, you know, in between the first petticoat, the second petticoat, over your hoops or under your hoops, and you could decide where you would wear them. But pickpockets had different techniques. Because they're detached, if they're hanging, say, on your on your hoops, you wouldn't really feel them against your thighs. So what a thief can do is just um, lift your sack, that is the outer gown, up and access your pockets. What they did was sometimes cut the string of the pocket. Sometimes they cut a slit at the bottom of the pocket to get the, the contents, you know, sort of um, out. And some thieves are found because they have blood on their hands mm-hmm. because obviously the, the kind of uh, knife has backfired on them and they cut themselves. And this is how somebody gets found because the woman's going to say, well, I noticed he had 
blood on his hand. And then I turned back and I noticed that my pocket was empty and it had a big slit in it, you know. And um, sometimes it's pure force. Sometimes they're not even trying to sort of do it stealthily. They just, you know, grab you, pull your skirt up and pull at the, the whole pocket, wrenching the whole pocket off your body to get everything rather than put your hand in your pocket to try and get whatever's in it. So yes, they were quite brazen. Mm, yeah. We're going to take another brief sponsor break, but more with Dr. Fenato when we come back. Welcome back. So, you know, we're, we're talking about the intimate nature of the pocket being layered within a woman's dress or, or layers of her dress. But I'm also sure that some of these purloined items were probably of a private nature in and of themselves, the things that were stolen. So I'm wondering if you can speak to the role of the pocket in a woman's personal life. Because in the book, you and Barbara note, I'm quoting you two, quote, women's control over this small space was hard won and fragile. And even the pocket could never guarantee women an undisputed experience of privacy. Pockets are really interesting in, in relation to privacy because women did not necessarily have a place of their own. Um, they did not necessarily have even elite women um, who we tend to think of as, you know, having their little closet and having their little boudoirs where they can retreat and write their letters. Well, that's not really, really that true. You know, even elite women, well, we know like Jen Austen, she didn't really have a place of her own or a room of her own. She wrote um, in the sitting room, kind of hiding a little bit from her relatives. <laughs> and Fanny Burney, uh, an, or another kind of published author, part of the elite, she's part of this woman who kind of keeps her, she keeps the last page of a diary in her pocket as a kind of letter. Uh, and then she either copies or attaches that page to the rest of the diary. And uh, earlier on in her diary writing, she tells of an incident of losing the last page of her diary because she's gone to write um, in her father's study because she doesn't have a study. So she, he has the desk and he, so she goes to use the desk. And this is how she loses the last page of the diary, which obviously she's really embarrassed about being 17. Um, <laughs> so even elite women did not necessarily have private spaces, spaces that actually controlled. So a woman's pocket could often act as the only potential place to experience privacy, something that at least, you know, was kept in the direct vicinity of the, of the body. At night, women had the habit of putting the pocket under the pillow, very much as you do um, when you're traveling, for instance, uh, I don't know, <laughs> whether your listeners are sort of uh, in the old days of traveling anyway, uh, uh, go to hostels or take night trains. But I remember when I was doing my traveling as a teenager uh, in night trains, you would be told to put your pocket or not your pocket, but your bag with your passport and everything under your pillow, thinking mm -hmm. this is the safest place. I feel it at night if somebody tries to pinch it. So the pocket was... Yes, detachable, but also very companionate 
intimate object that women always had about their bodies. And obviously this endows the pocket with intimacy already because even it's in its very fibers, the pocket would be imbibed with the sense of the warmth of the body, the scent of the body. Um, so it's a very, it's a very intimate object. Uh, but intimate doesn't necessarily need, mean private. Mm-hmm. And um, keeping the privacy of the pocket intact uh, is not, was not always easy because pockets were accessed, uh, you know, only with the hands, not with the eyes. You had to nav- navigate the different layers of your clothing to access your pocket and its different contents only through your hands. And obviously, when you pull something out, something else might drop, for instance, um, which is what happened to uh, Fanny Burney. So they're not completely sealed. They're not completely immune from uh, either an accident or somebody's prying fingers and eyes. Yeah. Uh, And they're often a place where say, jealous husbands or suspicious fathers uh, might want to look um, if they're suspecting any private correspondence or any untoward untoward happenings. The the pocket was an obvious uh, space to investigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I thought that that was really, um, especially that, that the, the pocket as being like the site of like external suspicion was um, that that whole concept played out in a really interesting way when you write about the fact that um, a lot of girls' schools during this time period did not let their students wear pockets because they they were they were you know acknowledging that these could be instruments of you know secrecy right mm. well I guess it's a it's um... It's a separate place, isn't it? It's yeah. it's a pocket. Always, it's the possibility of secrecy. It's not necessarily secrecy guaranteed, or privacy guaranteed, but it, it opens up the the possibility of secrecy, or of hiding something. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in in institutional settings like schools or prisons or workhouses, that possibility is always dangerous, right? Yeah, uh, because you don't know what women might harbor in that possibility of a private space. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tend to be uh, either very closely monitored or banned, or you know, not part of the uniforms. Yeah. Also, um, in the context of court records, you also note many, many, many instances where the contents of a woman's pocket were used in the context of criminal investigations. But one I would like to talk about is perhaps most notably to identify Catherine Eddowes, who was one of the victims of Jack the Ripper in 1888. What types of items were found on her and what was the importance of pockets to women who were in similar circumstances to Catherine? So Catherine Eddowes, um, she's um, one of the victims of Jack the Ripper. She is not the only one um, that had pockets out of the, all the victims. There's about five that for whom we have precise coroner's descriptions of what they were wearing and therefore 
we know whether or not they had pockets. And I, I think three of those at least had time pockets. But Catherine Eddowes is by far the most detailed in its um, in the records we have of what she had. And I think she is very emblematic of poorer London women, women just trying. The, the Jack the Ripper victims have often been described as prostitutes. They weren't prostitutes. They were just women trying to make ends meet. And Catherine Woman uh, did not prostitute herself. She was not selling her body. She had a partner. She was just living in really unstable, challenging circumstances in London, just doing bits and pieces to try and keep body and soul together, really. And the pockets that she had, when she was found, she had two pairs of pockets, and then other garments that she was wearing had also pockets. So she had quite a lot of containers about her. And it's, it, the, the, I, I am really quite touched by the Catherine Meadows story uh, because this woman was just struggling. You know, mm-hmm. she was just struggling, but she was trying to maintain a dignity. She was trying to maintain her living. She was trying to keep her life going despite um, very difficult circumstances. And the pockets uh, were part of that, were part of that resilience. And they played a part in collecting the bits and pieces that would allow her to keep her appearance, for instance, so she had little pieces of soap. It's interesting, the contents of her pockets, there's nothing that's whole. Everything is a fragment of, a piece of. So she's got pieces of soap. She's got a bit of tobacco. She's got tea uh, and sugar in a little tin, in a little um, tin box. And we know from different pieces in the investigation that the story is that um, her and her partner um, were trying to get money by going hop picking in Essex. Um, but they didn't get any work hot picking. So they came back to London really with no money whatsoever, not knowing where they're going to spend the night. And he pawns his boots so that they can at least have some breakfast. And so in her pocket, you find the tea and the sugar that they had bought for that breakfast, as well as the pawn ticket for his shoes. And this is how actually she gets identified. It's through that pawn ticket. And you really see her, of course, in the end, failed strategy to keep it together. But it's not in a way because it felt that the strategy wasn't there. You can see, so she's also got little pieces of rag that she's probably collected to sell to the rag and bone man. Um, You can see... Uh, you know, there's something about keeping her appearance. There's a comb. Uh, there's the soap I mentioned. Uh, uh, there's the tobacco. You know, it's November. She gets found in November. You know, you've got to keep, kind of sustain yourself with something. So uh, she, her story is really, really touching. Yeah. Uh, because you can see that hardship and you can see the strategies and you can see that her belongings are meager you know they're they're very humble uh, and then fragmented but they're still organized so it's not the same type of belonging that's in this pocket 
to the ones that are in that other pocket. So she is organizing her world, whatever that consists of, in among or across her different containers to try and, yeah, you know, keep an order, keep her life together. And I find this quite touching. Yeah. And also, too, you know, it could definitely be argued that pockets were very much used to aid a woman's mobility through navigating, you know, the urban landscape, right? And some of, some of the accounts, not just hers, but some of the other ones that you go into really kind of detail how a lot of these women who were in these really challenging circumstances were using their pockets to carry just about every physical belonging that they had. So, yeah, because women did not have safe accommodation, they did not really have somewhere where they could lock it up, you know, lock whatever they had up and go about, they carried what they had. Um, and obviously some women, you know, wore different petticoats to to keep warm, but also to put them somewhere yeah. uh, kind of safe or as safe as possible. And it's the same with the pockets. Like you keep everything you have in your pockets because that's, that's as safe as it's going to get. And it allows you to move places. And obviously for people in challenging circumstances, um, that mobility is going to be key because it's going to give you the adaptability, uh, the flexibility to go to Kent or to go to Essex um, and then come back to maybe try that lodging house, find that, you know, therefore go to this other lodging house with your everything, you know, your little world uh, around you or about you. So that, and it's the same with servants, for instance, servants um, is an occupation that you find uh, obviously many women engaged in um, where mobility is really important because you're, although you're trying to find a place, so in a way you're trying to find somewhere where you're not going to be moving, you're a position, somewhere you're stable. Uh, Really the life of service was a, a life of mobility forced or not even once you were in a position you still had to run around Uh, and for that pockets were really important because they are portable you can carry quite a lot whether it's your belongings or your mistress's belongings to and it leaves your hands free and so it is an instrument of mobility and freedom uh, even if um, this is to try and still float in challenging circumstances. So definitely less macabre than Catherine Eddowes' story, but perhaps no less heartbreaking or touching is also the story of Margaret Dees. Who was Margaret Dees? And can you tell us a little bit about a pocket that she created for Annie Sterling in 1851? So this is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, So basically, this is a pocket that is a tiny pocket. It's only a few, it's about 10 centimeters tall. So it's a miniature pocket rather than a functional pocket. And it's fascinating because it is, it was made by this woman called Margaret Dears, who is an inmate in a Glasgow prison. And what is fascinating about it is not so much its size, but the fact that it's embroidered in the woman's, we assume what is her own hair, 
and it's embroidered in this sentimental motto that says forget me not and then and then her name margaret diaz and it was uh, made uh, by this inmate in the prison and given as a gift to the governor's wife annie sterling now unfortunately we do not know what happened to margaret diaz um, after she gave, she gave that pocket, whether the forget-me-not was related to anything um, tragic for her, uh, whether, you know, she was deported or she was sentenced uh, or she was just leaving the prison uh, and she didn't want to be, to be forgotten. But obviously it's a very touching story because of what we were discussing before as well. Um, she is in this prison, and we know the prison, we've made some research about the prison, and we know that this is a prison that was implementing the kind of um, Jeremy Bentham's idea of a panopticon, a prison where everything is supposed to be visible, you're supposed to see into the cells, and um, uh, inmates are under constant supervision and uh, a constant gaze uh, so there's this kind of scopic dream or nightmare in place in that prison. Obviously, having a small pocket, even if it's made potentially under the supervision of the of the uh, the governor's wife, because we know that uh, sometimes there were sort of educational things or projects made with the inmates. We know that having creating that space is potentially always subversive you know what she could put although it's small she could still put something in that pocket she could cr still create a space that is her own whether or not in a way she puts anything in it she's still creating a space of her own you know this is a very intimate story right she is making this pocket she is embroidering it with her own hair so there's this level of intimacy and sentimentality to this story that I kind of like to like parlay into pointing out that pockets were often made for friends, um, relatives, and they were often given as gifts. So why was it that pockets were kind of viewed as a token of friendship? Well, that's an interesting question uh, and points really. The relationship between um, pockets and friendship which could work in two ways because you could make pockets for friends or relatives. Uh, you could give your pocket to a friend in your will or receive a pocket of your friend in a will. But pockets, because they're also harbored small objects that could be sentimental in nature because they were companionate or, you know, objects which held other companionate things they also formed this kind of very feminine space, a sort of space for inter-female relationships uh, because friends would give each other little things to put in each other's pockets like symbols or handkerchiefs or purses that they had made for each other. So, And it's something that is when people say, yeah, but, you know, uh, men also had pockets and yes, men had pockets, but they didn't make their own pockets. And I don't think there was this traffic of femininity or female things 
as much or of male things as much in men's pockets. I think there's something very specific about the femininity of that space mm-hmm. and how both in its exterior and in its interior, it was for women, by women, through other women. And it's maybe why it was seen as also threatening because it was a space that men had very little to do with. Yeah. So eventually, as we as we transition into the tail end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, we start to see um, the popularity of tie-on pockets dissipate slowly. Didn't happen overnight. Um, but um, my question to you is, do you think that this has anything to do with the increasing use of handbags? So the question of the famous question of handbags and pockets, another question that's puzzled us uh, all through the writing of the book. Well, I'd say that this is not a new question. The question of handbags and pockets is not something that suddenly appears in the 19th century. A mm-hmm. uh, handbag uh, or a handheld bag, although it wasn't called a handbag, but it was a bag held in the hand, um, had been there since you know the 17th century. Women had gaming bags, had work bags, had different bags that they carried in their hands. Mm-hmm. In the, um, the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, uh, you obviously have the reticule, the small pass, outside pass that is supposed or seen by a dress historian of, often as the first handbag, um, that if you listen to the press, if you listen to the fashion press of the time, just eradicates the town pockets. The, the traditional narrative was that uh, women had pockets in the 18th century, then the reticule appeared and pockets were out. And then women had the reticule and then they had the handbag. Well, what we found is that although the press said, you know, you are old fashioned, if you carry on wearing pockets, any respectable young fashionable woman will want to reticule these days. Uh, well, that's not really what women did. So that was a fascinating uh, insight that what the press was telling women to do about what is fashionable, what is appropriate, wasn't necessarily what women actually did. Mm. Um, so uh, fashion and dress practices are not always the same, and women are not necessarily swayed by the latest fad saying, or abandon your pockets, then fashionable, because pockets were cold and fashionable for at least half of their lives. Uh, they're just in discourses, cast as old-fashioned, unfashionable. The kind of accessory of doddering old women uh, was the handbag or the reticule supposed to be the modern new thing. Um, so that's not a new thing. That you know, That's not a new sort of contrast to a new debate. Um, I think what changes uh, in the 19th century is not necessarily the handbag so much, but maybe more the fact that women start working in more in the same types of jobs or not really the same types, but then they have more careers in 
offices, in uh, jobs where um, at the end of the 19th century, you start having more tailored suits for women. So it's also the people wearing, making women's clothes that change and it starts being more tailors. And tailors had always been used to making pockets, inserting pockets for men. So I, I'm not sure it's the handbag really that's displaced or overthrown the pockets. Mm. I think it's a combination of, of factors, but it's, it's very difficult to explain why something appears and why something disappears. Yeah. Why did pockets end? Yeah. And, 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 and on that same note, you know, a lot of the listener requests that we've gotten for an episode on pockets have kind of come to us with this question of asserting that modern day women's clothing has less frequently pockets than men's clothing. So it could be argued, yes, it could be argued, no. I'm curious as, I mean, obviously you and Barbara have thought extensively on the topic of pockets, much more so than many, many people. I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on this. Like, do modern day women's clothing contain less pockets? And if so, what does that mean? So my answer is yes. (laughs) Modern day clothes, women's clothes are notorious in lacking pockets uh, from, you know, fake pockets in jeans to uh, no pockets in dresses or skirts and um, then pockets in jeans that are su- jeans that are supposed to be a unisex type of garment that you know you probably your listeners will know but probably the uh, uh, study that was done by the website the pudding measuring the average size of pockets in different brands American brands of jeans uh, for men and for women and finding that the average women's jeans pocket is, I can't remember how many inches shorter and narrower than um, the equivalent in the same brand for men and what objects you can and cannot fit in this or that pocket you know, or brand, uh, whether you can f- fit your iPhone or not your iPhone. So yes, obviously uh, there is a pocket question, a pocket equality <laughs> question at the moment. Um, What's interesting, though, is that this question of the kind of uh, inferiority of women's pockets in relation to men's pockets was not really a question, was not really raised until the pockets we're talking about in the book disappeared. Mm. Now, you could be provocative a little bit and say that because there is an interesting dovetailing of issues between the women's suffrage, women getting the vote, so the suffragist movement, and a moment at the end of the 19th century when women don't really have as much the town pockets that we described, but they don't really have real pockets either. So they're in a kind of no pocket zone. Um, And there is a, a layering of the discourses about having pockets and having the suffrage. And uh, there's even a a funny text sort of using all the anti-suffrage rhetoric um, that was used at the time and using it as as if it was written about pockets and why should women not be given pockets, just like you had the rhetoric. Why 
should not women be given the vote? So there's an interesting kind of correlation between uh, women getting the vote and franchisement and having pockets or modern day pockets. Uh, and even later, when women did get the vote in Britain anyway, or some women did get the vote in Britain, uh, Gwen Reverett, who's the granddaughter of um, Charles Darwin, and who's an artist, and she's got a really nice piece uh, where she remembers her childhood. And she says, oh, you know, in those days we had pockets and I remember everything I put in my pockets. And she kind of lists all the wonderful hoards that she could on only fit in those really big pockets and not in the pockets of, you know, 1950 Britain or contemporary Britain or contemporary Western world anyway. It ends with, you know, we have suffrage, but why can't we have pockets? <laughs> so if you want to be provocative, you could say that it's interesting that in a way, the bulky, uh, very capacious pockets that we're describing arrived at a time when women were given the right to private property in their own name and were given suffrage. So is it payback, you know? Is it payback for taking the pockets away? Is this your blood money for a sort of retaliation for other powers or empowering tools? Mm -hmm. The suffrage or accessing property in your own right? Uh, but we're not pushing that argument in the book. I'm just playing with the idea. Thank you so, so, so much. This was incredibly fascinating. This episode is going to make a ton of people super, super happy. Um, it's only been four seasons in the making. So thank you so much, Dr. Fenito, for joining us. And we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you once again, Ariane, for joining us for this fascinating two-part episode. Yeah, and, and Cass, on that last note um, about the pockets evolution and connection, to the suffrage movement. I'd also just like to mention an essay which Ariane and Barbara reference in the book. And it was an essay written in 1895 by none other than one of the leaders of the American suffrage movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And it, this essay was entitled, The Pocket Problem. <laughs> So, so clearly, many of our modern day consternations regarding pockets and women's garments, well, you know, they were shared by our counterparts more than 125 years ago. And our interview with Dr. Finto only scratches the surface of many of these issues. If you'd like to learn more, we highly recommend picking up a copy of The Pocket, A Hidden History of Women's Lives, 1660 to 1900, as there's just so much more to say on the topic, not to mention the wonderful images that are in this book of some of the 400 pairs of extant tie-on pockets, which they examined in the course of their research. I mean, some of them are just sublimely beautiful. This book is incredible. I highly recommend. Yes, yes, yes. And I just kind of vote we all just start wearing tie-on pockets again. And then I was thinking about this. And, and then I was like, and then I realized I was like, oh, Cass and I already kind of do. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this. I think we maybe briefly mentioned this on the show before, but you have been a really big fan of fanny packs. Oh, or, yeah. Or as they're <laughs> called in the UK, bum bags. Um, for quite a while, 
And, and it was only finally this summer that I converted to them because I was riding my bike everywhere um, because it didn't, it was, you know, it was still COVID and I didn't want to take the subway in New York City during the middle of a pandemic. And so now I get it. it. It is so easy and convenient to have your hands free. So if you kind of think about it, fanny packs, bum bags, they're kind of in a lot of ways, this <laughs> modern day incarnation of tie-on pockets. Yeah, and if you want to be a little more literal, dress listeners, you'll probably remember from our interview last week with Christine of At Sostein that there are a lot of historical costumers and dressmakers who are making renditions or their own versions of these historical tie-on pockets. So you too can participate in the tie-on pocket trend that April and I are voting for <laughs> to start back Bring immediately. Back. Bring it back. <laughs> well, that does it for our two-part episode on a history of the pocket dress listeners. May you consider the political implications of the pocket next time you get dressed. Please join us next week for our full-length episode on Tuesday and be sure to check out our Instagram for images which accompany each week's episodes at dressed underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.